This is the Fleet Street Fox column for Monday, July the 18th, 2022. Don't get so hot under the collar, snowflakes. It's no worse than... Oh, wait, yes it is. Someone on the internet will very soon tell you that in 1976, we could deal with heat waves. And we did. As Britain roasted in a pan for 10 weeks, water was rationed, people had to fill the kettle from standpipes in the street, a drought minister was appointed, and the stewards at Wimbledon actually removed their jackets. But then the hottest it got was 35.9 degrees. And it's worth noting, at that temperature, there were 20% excess deaths, billions strong swarms of aphids and ladybirds, so thick they looked like green and red smoke, widespread crop failures, a 12% increase in food prices, and Big Ben stopped working. The real reason 1976 caused all those problems and entered the national psyche was that it was a year-long drought with a two-month heat wave at the end. And it wasn't helped by the fact we had no air conditioning, no sunscreen, and hats were something only old ladies wore. Yet saying... Well, this brief heat wave is completely fine because some of us survived a completely different thing doesn't work quite so well in a tweet or a brain. We aren't at the end of a drought. It's not as bad for crops, people or water supplies. Ladybird numbers are yet to become biblical. But we do have two very big problems to deal with. The first is that today it's going to be hotter outside our bodies at 42 degrees than inside them, which is normally 37 degrees. The second is that some people have decided to deal with it by putting their heads up their arses. When the outside air becomes hotter than your blood, the best thing to do is stay in the shade, hydrate and stick your feet in a bucket of cold water. Climbing up your own backside is not recommended because there's very little oxygen up there and it's still pretty warm, with added issues of odour and comfort. Science has established that temperatures of 43 degrees will cause convulsions and brain damage to most humans and eventually death. We all know that some of us are more sensitive to heat than others, especially those who are older, paler and too silly to remove themselves from the problem. Perhaps this explains why climate change deniers are showing those symptoms already. The people most likely to burn are the ones who say it's not hot. Mother Nature must be a satirist after all. Sadly for everyone with their head in the real world, it is getting hotter. If 1976 was the hottest summer for 350 years, then the 1995 heatwave saw a 59% increase in deaths. The 2003 heatwave was the hottest since 1540 and killed 72,000 people. And the one in 2018 led to an algae bloom poisoning the Baltic, the shutdown of nuclear power plants and Saddleworth Moor catching fire. In 2003, the hottest temperature ever recorded in Britain was 38.5. By 2019, it had gone up to 38.7. Yet in the space of three years, it will today have jumped three degrees in a single bound. And just about everyone everywhere agrees these extreme heat events are getting hotter and more frequent. Of course, some will quite rightly point out that ice core samples and the fossil record prove that the Earth has undergone periods of extreme warming and she will survive it just fine. And she will, because she's a rock. We, on the other hand, are walking meat sacks who seem to ignore the fact that last time the planet warmed up by 10 degrees, the dominant life form was killed off. They were dinosaurs too. You'd think the antediluvians of social media would know what had happened to their own people. Climate change is nothing new. It was being taught in schools 30 years ago. In the decades since, two things have happened. The first is that further scientific evidence has confirmed it all, and the second is that governments have worked out what needs to be done and thrown a sprocket because of the cost. 
If governments pay to insulate your homes, put solar panels on your roofs and make your roads not melt in the heat, well, yes, it may create jobs, save energy and cost less than not doing anything. But it would also mean not spending so much on nuclear weapons, private jets and huge great £80,000 cars capable of doing a round raid on a rural post office. And that would never do. So instead, the governments have told you it's too difficult and too expensive. If you want to save the planet, you'll need to pay more to do it, they say. And so, like every human confronted with having more or having less, especially if what you're buying is invisible, people worldwide voted for the governments that offered fewer taxes. And even now, with Britain roasting in temperatures not seen since lizards last roamed the earth, many of the candidates to be Prime Minister are campaigning on a platform of throwing green taxes and net zero out the window, while 96% of the Tory members who'll vote for them say climate change isn't a priority. There are plenty of ways that the government can spend existing money in greener ways, including using job creation initiatives, tax breaks and re-rolling out insulation schemes that were scrapped a decade ago in the name of austerity. A green bias could be brought into every government department because it affects levelling up, business, education, the health service, crime, energy, defence, food, immigration and everything else, to steal a phrase, under the sun. Under the current PM, climate change is an issue for a junior minister who doesn't attend cabinet. Under the next one, it'll be labelled expensive wokery and consigned to the bin. And Labour, which has yet to set out its manifesto policies, has Ed Miliband on the case, where he is mostly ignored. The simple fact is that in 1976 we didn't know about climate change, now we do. We also didn't walk around then saying, oh this is fine, it's summer, what are you all moaning about? And if anyone did, they soon died of thirst. And that's what's happening here. Mother Nature's pruning fork is rooting out those unfit for survival. On the grounds they're the ones who turned the oven on, left it on for decades, and are now too stupid to notice the only way gammon makes it through this sort of heat is with a great deal of spitting and increasing levels of silence. They could help us turn the oven off, of course. Someone is going to have to. And judging from the way climate change sceptics are being booted from power all over the Western world, governments will probably get round to it at some point. Until then, the rest of us will just have to keep pointing out facts like great dollops of mustard, keep ourselves cool and hope that the people who made this mess are the ones who meld first. This is the Fleet Street Fox column for Friday, July the 22nd, 2022. If Prince Harry gets his way, he'd become the most expensive royal in history. Imagine for a moment you were born a prince. Then imagine you were the one who wouldn't have a job. Enormous wealth, opportunity and privilege would come laced with threats, drama, tabloid attention and a never-ending stream of people who'd do anything, say anything, to be close enough that some of all that would rub off on them. And without a role in life, you'd still need to maintain a status that's largely imaginary and practically beyond price. We all might decide Falstaff was a fine friend, or bathing naked with a tiara on was sound PR policy. We'd all want to have the cake, eat it, and smear it all over our faces like the self-centred dimwits we had been bred to be. Happy days then, if being a rich twit with time on your hands is your aim. If, on the other, you want to be a jet-setting philanthropist with the private jets and sprawling mansions affordable only to billionaires, it creates a few issues. The first is reputation. You will get into trouble. 
The second is that you will need status delivered by birth or money, preferably both. And the third is security, because you will attract crazies. Inside the royal family, there is help. There's the sovereign grant, free houses, unarguable status, press officers, tradition, precedent and the highly trained and well-armed royalty and specialist protection command of the Metropolitan Police Service. The problem arises when someone wants to exit the constraints of the royalty but wishes to retain everything else. You will need to trade on the royalty which, like a new car, depreciates once you drive it away. You might get the loan of a house but a friend's patience will wear thin more quickly than that of a government. PRs cost money, you've just taken a dump on tradition, and the Met doesn't make as much effort for celebrities. Harry and Meghan have done well to make themselves multimillionaires, albeit with a mortgage, but they've been tripped up on security because they live in a country filled with guns and want to occasionally visit a country that isn't. La La Land bodyguards are only allowed to set foot on British soil if they leave their bullet-filled toys at home. If you're subject to threats, both political and personal, terrorist and fantasist, it's less than ideal. That's why, after all, every major royal gets armed protection, even in a country where very few people have guns. And that's why Prince Harry is suing the Home Office over the decision not to let him have police protection when he's in the UK. He's even offered to pay for it himself, which is nice. And this is as far as his wits seem to have taken both him and media coverage of the issue on both sides of the Atlantic. Guns and money. That's what royalty's always been about, isn't it? But highly trained and well-armed police protection are not celebrity bodyguards. They are selected, interviewed and security vetted. They're physically assessed, undertake advanced first aid training, a firearms course and submit to regular assessments, a code of ethics and examinations. After that, they're allowed to sign out a gun, which if they fire it, will see them immediately suspended from duty and investigated. There are about 6,500 of these officers in the UK, all of them rather more committed to the job due to the selection process than a Californian quarterback who likes acting tough. After that, they might be allowed to stand outside an event. Then they might be able to move jobs or be promoted. Some will form a rapid response unit ready to go at a moment's notice to the scene of a crime and others will go on to counter-terrorism. If they're so inclined and suitable, they could join the Specialist Operations Directorate, which includes those armed officers who protect royalty, government ministers, the Houses of Parliament, heads of state and royal or government buildings. Those who provide close personal protection for royalty have to be discreet, trusted, as familiar as a member of staff, but able to overrule the rebellious prince or take a bullet for him. For all this training and expertise, the highest paid officers in royal protection can expect a salary of £100,000 plus expenses, plus death, plus a lot of overprivileged pratting about. There are, it's thought, fewer than 200 of these officers. And it's from these ranks which Prince Harry expects to hire, on a whim, protection specialists for infrequent visits to the UK. What a grand idea, until you ask yourself how many you need and who you're not protecting instead. Royal protection works shifts, like other police. It takes, usually, three to cover one principal for a 24-hour period, with a fourth on a rest day. With Megan and the children in tow, plus need for a commander, surveillance and briefings from the rest of the chain, you probably need more than ten officers a day. Which means his royal hot-headedness is asking for roughly 5% of the UK's total specialist protection to be devoted to the sixth, seventh and eighth in line to the throne – who are neither the most important nor the most at risk. 
It's something even Anne and Edward don't get unless on official duties. And Edward doesn't get, and Andrew doesn't get at all. Nor do any of Harry's cousins. They rely instead on living in royal houses, which are guarded and standing as close to the Queen as possible. And for him to have that protection, it has to be withdrawn from somebody who already has it. The officers best qualified to guard Harry protect senior royals, the Prime Minister, members of the government and visiting dignitaries. You may wish to quibble over whether Nadine Dorries is more of a threat to the British state than she is a potential victim, but you can bet your bottom dollar that none of those people will want to lose one of their coppers to the Duke and Duchess of California. Let's say they don't then. That means the commanders of this small unit must cancel leave, potentially at the last minute, and provide what officers they can scrape together to protect Harry and Meghan. Or perhaps they draft in armed officers from a different unit, second-class royal protection, and still causing manpower problems elsewhere. None of these are workable, which leaves a third option. A dozen royal protection specialists just for Harry and Meghan, trained, armed to the teeth, and sitting on their backsides for 99% of the year. This is such a dramatic waste of money and ego that it would sink quicker than the crown jewels in the wash. And even with his income, Harry couldn't afford it. Which brings us to what reportedly was Harry's original request when he left royalty behind him, for the police to come with. The taxpayer foot was publicly put down, which led to a Home Office decision not to fund his security and now his court efforts to get it overturned. But internally, the concerns are about more than just the cost. It also centred on British men and women working one week on, one week off, 6,000 miles from home. Transatlantic commutes, for which they'd need to be paid just for being in the air. It would mean Harry needed more officers than the Queen, and the expenses bill would make him the most expensive royal of all time. Henry VIII's Field of the Cloth of Gold, a pageant of bling, was £15 million in modern money. The Prince Regent blew the equivalent of £27 million on the Brighton Pavilion and only slept in it twice. By comparison, Harry's police security estimates started at £7.7 million, then leapt to £25 million for 12 officers, and you can probably double that. At the Invictus Games in April, he and Meghan had five bodyguards with more at home guarding the babies. Triple it for shift patterns, add a bit more for rest days and annual leave. The cost of the British police providing them with the same coverage year round would be astronomical, which is ironic because that's about where his ego is in orbit. If Prince Harry doesn't want to be royal, good luck to him. I'd hate it too. But working royalty, if you can call it work, comes with perks you can't buy from outside. Harry can protect his reputation, he can monetize his ever decreasing relevance to the throne, but he can't make people treat him like he's special. Royalty is a fiction, but police officers, their needs, training and pay are part of a reality Harry has never had to consider. Nor, it seems, has he weighed up whether fighting a court case about royal protection might involve making the numbers and costs of it public, which automatically makes it less safe for everyone. But what use is wisdom to a self-centred dimwit who thinks he will find freedom in a world that is much smaller and scarier than the palace he flounced out of? If only he'd found a way to stay, he could have kept the scam going.